and welcome to The Upgrade, the podcast from the team at Lifehacker, where we help you improve your life one week at a time. I'm Jordan Calhoun, Editor-in-Chief of Lifehacker. And I'm Megan Walbert, Lifehacker's Managing Editor. And today, Megan, we're honing our listening skills and we're learning how to have deeper conversations. Um, what? See, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You're not paying attention. And while many people are good (laughs) at the skill of listening, (laughs) it's something that we could definitely all improve upon. There's an art to better listening. There is. And we have writer and researcher Jimena Vanguachea here to help us, and we need it. So often we're we're trying so hard to to say the next thing and to say the right thing, when really all, all that person might need from us is to bear witness to their story and to just have the space to share their story without, you know, being redirected to, well, let me tell you how I handled this or or anything like that. Jimena is a user researcher, writer, and illustrator. She honed her listening skills while doing research for companies like Pinterest, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And she's the creator of the popular self-help project called The Life Audit. Jimena's written work has also appeared in outlets like Inc., The Washington Post, Newsweek, Fast Company, and The Muse. And now Jimena has a new book out called Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. And she joined us this week to talk about what good listening looks like and how we can have deeper conversations. Megan, when you think about the deepest conversations that you've had, the best ones, if you were to just think back in your memory and recall a time where you thought it was really gratifying to talk with someone, what was that like? Like, where were you? How long was the conversation? Were there, was there anything about that experience that stood out that made it different from the passing conversations that you have every day? I think for me, um, in order to have a really good, deep conversation, I, I need to be, especially if I'm having it on the phone, I need to sort of isolate myself away from distractions. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I am very easily distracted by the world around me, particularly in my home with my family walking around. And so for me, I need that sort of self-isolation, whether it's one-on-one with somebody or whether I'm, you know, kind of locking myself off in the basement to have, you know, a good conversation with a friend. I need that separation, I think, from the world. What, what about you? How do you find yourself having deep conversations? I'm exactly the same, except... Instead of the distractions of what's around me, I think more about the pace of my life. Like I have a very Mm. cliche New York paced life where I'm always thinking about the next thing that I have to do or the next place that I have to go or the next thing that has to get done. So when I have deep conversations with people, the times that stand out to me are the times that I was outside of the bubble of like my daily minutia and the things that I need to get done. And I can actually slow down and engage in the conversation and be present rather than thinking about the next thing that I have to do. And normally for me, that happens like on vacation or when I'm outside of the city or when I'm, yeah, if, 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 if I have the space and the time to not have any commitments, then those commitments, the next thing on my to-do list is the distraction that's taken away and I can engage with that person in the type of way that I wouldn't be able to otherwise. Yeah, so you sound like you're a, you know, take long walks on the beach and have big conversations type of person. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Like sit under the stars and contemplate life with a friend as opposed to doing it when I'm like out on a walk with my dog and you run into someone and you could begin what could be a deep conversation if not for me needing to finish the walk with my dog and go wash dishes afterwards. Right. Well, it sounds like we probably have some room for improvement here. Let's find out if Jimena can help us out. Jimena, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to have you. 
I'm so delighted to be here. I want to start with broader context for the book. The subtitle of the book is Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. And I want to ask to begin, what was the reason behind the book? What was some common things that you've seen in bad connections and bad listening that made you decide to write this book? Yeah, I think, you know, the the driving impulse behind writing the book was really a sense that I think many of us share, which is that there's a, a sense of disconnection between us. And I think that's for many reasons. It's partly because of the way we mediate our relationships through technology. It's partly because of this particular cultural, political moment that we're in. Um, and, and I think that one really small but important thing that we can do to rebuild those relationships and to strengthen those relationships is to have better and deeper conversations. And to me, that's where listening comes into play. And it's not so much that we are sort of permanently bad listeners so much as that we've acquired maybe bad habits. Um, and also that the things that make us less effective as, as listeners are a reflection of like us as humans. They're actually very human problems. They have to do with ego, um, wanting to speak up to the, uh, in a way that makes it hard to hear other people wanting to get our point across, disengaging because we're bored. Like those are all really deeply human things that have just, I think, been exacerbated by all of these tools and technology in this particular moment that we're in. Yeah, you start at the beginning of your book by talking about cultivating a listening mindset and the importance of developing that. And I'm, I'm curious, what does that look like or sound like in practice to have that that good listening mindset? Yeah. So I talk about a listening mindset as having three core components. So that's bringing in qualities like humility, curiosity, and empathy. And humility is really coming in with an open mind and being ready to hear what someone has to say, being ready to learn from them, which is different than coming in, like I was mentioning earlier, with assumptions or preconceived notions or opinions that we want to get across. So it's really flipping the switch and saying, I'm here to learn from you rather than I'm here to teach you something. And curiosity is what allows you to go a little bit deeper because that's what allows you to really get to know and understand another person. What is their perspective? Why do they think these things? Why are they drawn to these topics? I think often it's it feels fairly easy for us to get curious about topics that we're naturally interested in. You know, if you're a movie buff and you're talking about movies, great, fairly easy. But let's say that person that you're talking to is really into sports, you're not. It can be very easy to just kind of shut down. But that's where it becomes even more important to stay curious and to understand, well, why is this person so interested in, in this topic? What can I learn about this person by way of what they want to share with me? And then it's almost like a funnel. You're starting broad with humility and, and starting open and you're progressively getting a little bit deeper using curiosity. And eventually you hit empathy, which I think is that third quality to the listening mindset that really makes it possible to truly get to know someone because you're talking about emotions and their, their emotional experience. And it's not to say that we have to share you know, the exact situation that someone is going through in order to empathize with them. If someone is going through a divorce, you've never experienced that. That's okay. But you can relate to the feeling of, oh, wow, they're grieving over a phase of their life ending, right? Maybe you felt something like that. Or 
there's some shame associated with this particular moment. So it's tapping into those underlying emotions as a way to really connect with someone. I'm glad you mentioned empathetic listening. A challenge that I have, if I'm thinking about when I am trying to listen empathetically to someone, if they're you know going through a particular challenge of a divorce, for example, like you gave, is that in my effort to empathize with them, I can start going down my own rabbit hole in my head and trying to think of those places of connection that I have or trying to think of how I'm going to respond or start to project things on their experience that may or not be there. And when I'm doing that, I'm not, or I think I'm not effectively listening anymore because I'm strategizing in my head. I'm strategizing how I'm going to respond. I'm strategizing how much of my personal experience can be relatable or useful to them. I'm, I'm more in my head than present in that moment and listening to them. So how can you stop from doing that? Do you have any advice for how someone like me could rein in those thoughts and actually be listening to the other person rather than trying to formulate their response or, or try to understand the moment? I almost feel like my best understanding for conversations happens an hour after the conversation's over because I've actually had enough time to think about what they've said, but you can't really do that the same way in the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think what you're pointing to is a pretty common challenge that we have in conversation, which is like the human brain is an amazing thing and it can process so much at the same time, which means we often are going off and thinking about, you know, how do I relate? What should I say next? Or you're maybe not even thinking about that and you just are saying, (laughs) you know, you're kind of processing aloud. It's a very common challenge. And I think for that, one of the things that you can do is just start to build awareness of that in the moment. So as those thoughts come up and you become aware of, oh, I'm planning my response, (laughs) just acknowledging that and say, okay, my brain is planning my response. Let me come back to center or, okay, my thoughts are starting to get away from me. Let me return to the present moment. Um, Because I think so often we're we're trying so hard to to say the next thing and to say the right thing when really all all that person might need from us is to bear witness to their story and to just have the space to share their story without you know being redirected to well let me tell you how i handled this or or anything like that so i think if you're ever in doubt a great place to start is just to bear witness and then let the person have that space and take up that space. And maybe when they're finished, you can check in. And, you know, instead of having to sort of guess what response would be appropriate, you can say something like, you know, my instinct is to to share a story about my experience with that. Would that be helpful? And take some of the guesswork out of the equation and relieve some of the pressure for yourself. Another thing that you talk about in the book are connecting and exploratory questions. And I think this kind of goes back to, you know, having that curiosity mindset, um, particularly maybe in, in getting to know someone. And I know I, as a trained journalist, have a tendency to, when I meet someone, ask a lot of questions. So whatever topic they kind of get on, I'll ask, you know, tell me more about that. Oh, where are you from? You know, I do a lot of that. And I'm wondering... At what point, well, maybe if you can kind of talk about these connecting and exploratory questions a little bit, and then also how do you how do you ask those questions without coming off like a therapist or an interrogator or someone who's just, you know, pelting you with questions? Yeah. So I'll, I'll first touch on the kind of questions, which it, which it sounds like you're particularly familiar with given your background. But a lot of times in conversation, we're not really paying attention to the types of questions we ask. And so we might inadvertently ask questions that aren't 
really going to take the conversation anymore, anywhere. Sorry. Questions that might end in a yes or no, result in a yes or no response, or one word, single word answer. Um, and those tend to start with do, is, and are, as opposed to asking more open ended questions that start with how or what. So even asking someone, are you mad at me? <laughs> is going to yield a very different response than, hey, how are you feeling right now? Right. One of them is kind of leading someone into a particular path. And then the other is just leaving it very open-ended. So in general, we do want to try and shift towards more open-ended questions, at least at the start of the conversation, so that we can let the other person lead, you know, wherever, wherever it is they may want to go. Your point about asking too many questions is totally a fair one. And I think that that's where we have to stay really flexible in conversation. So it, we might have a goal of getting to know someone or a goal of learning something, about a person. And those questions can be used to meet that goal. But we also need to be tracking what's happening for the other person. Are they starting to offer smaller and smaller responses? Are they running out of breath because we keep asking them questions and they're, you know, kind of giving us paragraph responses? Um, I think paying attention to those cues can be a sign for us to maybe lean back a little bit or start to offer something from our own perspective, I think it is important in a conversation. There are two sides. There's the listening side. There's the speaking side. You want there to be a give and take. And then the other thing I'll say that I think can can help with that instinct in particular is to figure out what does the other person's need in this conversation? Because when we're doing all of the question asking, that's probably stemming from our own need. There's something that we're maybe trying to do. We want to make them feel comfortable. We want to get to know them to a certain degree. But the other person also has a need. So you really want to make space for both of those needs in conversation. And that takes a little bit of balance. And that's the sort of art and science of like leaning in and then leaning back in the conversation too. Let's say then you're the person who's looking for empathy in this conversation. You are trying to be the taker in this context. And you notice the other person is, you assume that they're trailing off. You're looking at them and you know their eyes are glazed over or they're giving very sort of formulaic responses to what you're saying. Do you call that out? Do you, are there any strategies that you have for reining in someone's attention when you're feeling that you've lost them? And is that different for if it's an interpersonal relationship with a friend that you know versus, you know, a professional setting where you're at work? I think there are definitely techniques to rein someone back into the conversation. I think the approach is going to depend largely on your relationship with that person and the degree to which you have a, a level of intimacy or shared vulnerability and trust, really. Because if it's that, if that is there, let's say it's with a partner or a close friend, you can say something like, hey, I feel like you're not totally with me. Is that right? I might be misreading. You know, you can kind of caveat like, hey, I might mm -hmm. be misreading yeah. this. Here's what here's what I'm taking away from this interaction. And I, I'm really hoping for X. Like, I'm really hoping for your undivided attention because I'm super struggling to get through this problem and I want your advice. I'm really hoping for just some comfort. I feel very alone in this situation. Um, I'm really hoping for some affirmation, you know, some validation that I'm not crazy here. And that is often hard for us to do, to be so explicit about what we're looking for in conversation. Yeah. But if you can, you are doing the other person a huge favor. And if you can't, you know, that's that's where as the listener, that's a, the need that you're trying to suss out is like, what does this person need 
from me in this conversation? Why are they bringing this topic to me in particular? Is there something about, is there something about me or am I just a vessel for this moment? And so you're kind of hunting for that. And then on the other end, if you're the person who needs that, the best thing you can do is be explicit about it. Is is the onus on both people to to get to that understanding of what each person wants in the conversation? Or is it more on the person who wants something? Is it more on the listener or the speaker? I think it's I think it's on both realistically, because so many of us feel so uncomfortable with being so explicit about what we need in a conversation. I think it's very rare for someone to come to us and say, hey, what I really need from you right now is support. And then, you know, like that's, and it almost sounds foreign to our ears because we hear it so rarely. So I think it's something to aspire to being able to share. And then also realistically as a listener, just to know that there is an underlying need that may not, that probably is not being expressed and doing your best to work together to surface that. And and many people need to get to that point through conversation And that's where asking questions and, you know, checking in with that person of, hey, you know, again, my instinct is to offer you advice. Would that be helpful here? You're sort of you're sort of coaching that person into expressing that need more explicitly if they haven't already. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All of this too is it can be difficult for a naturally empathetic listener because I think people are drawn to that type of person. And it can almost be, I think, maybe a little overwhelming when you are the person that everybody comes to to sort of unload or vent, you know, or or talk through issues. So what what's your advice for the naturally empathetic listener who might be feeling a little drained maybe from their relationships? Absolutely. And I think drained is the right word because this kind of listening. It takes more work than the sort of general surface listening, and it is going to, um, it can leave you drained, especially if you are the person playing armchair therapist to all your friends. So for that, I think that setting some boundaries is really helpful, and that might mean doing a sort of relationship audit where you look at those friendships, you look at those relationships, and you get a sense of, are my relationships even in the sense that Yes, sometimes I'm playing armchair therapist, but these people are also here for me. Or has it really gotten one-sided in certain relationships where I am always the person who is offering that empathetic ear and I've inadvertently become a vessel for other people's problems? I think it's worth kind of taking that look and then deciding what you want to do about it. You know, if this is something that happens from time to time, maybe not a big deal. If this is something that happens consistently, maybe that's a relationship that you need to revisit and figure out whether that's one you want to continue or distance yourself from. 
And then even more tactically, like outside of this kind of zooming out on your relationships in the moment, I think it's important to figure out how to gracefully exit from a conversation. So how to say something like, hey, um, you know, I want to be here for you. I'm also noticing that I'm having a strong emotional reaction to what's happening, what we're talking about. I need to pause. Or, you know, maybe you know that there's a friend who consistently relies on you for these kinds of conversations. You can even say up front, I'm so excited to chat. I only have 20 minutes, but I'm all ears until then, right? So you're time boxing ahead of time and saying, this is what I can offer you, which is actually really helpful for both parties. So there's ways to sort of design the conversation up front to give yourself some leeway. And if the relationship can support it to also say, I have to run, I'm late, or I'm having a, a tricky reaction to this. I need to pause or, or whatever it may be to, to extricate yourself from that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that so many of these things sound foreign to our ears because we're not used to expressing that ourselves or hearing people say that, you know, they have this time box or they want a specific thing from this conversation. Another thing I think that sounds foreign to us is silence, like having long pauses in a conversation or having those moments where, you know, you're maybe contemplating your response or you're thinking about what you're going to say before you say it. Can you talk about the role that silence plays effectively in a conversation and how we can embrace that to be better listeners? Yes. So most of us hate silence in conversations. We get uncomfortable and we start to think that maybe it's a reflection of like, oh, that was a bad joke or I'm boring this person or we have no chemistry. Um, So we feel like it's something to be avoided. But if you can embrace it, what usually happens after offering a little bit of breathing room in a conversation is that people step into it more fully. And part of that is because we feel nervous. And so we have an instinct to share more because we feel nervous about this silence. Um, But part of that can also be that maybe the other person was just still processing, right? Everybody processes at different rates. So what sounds to you like an unbearable silence might be a like comma in their thinking, you know, and that's it. And they still are processing and thinking through. And so if you just hold out a little bit longer than is comfortable, something really rich and rewarding and insightful can come from that. And if you're like me who finds it difficult, like one thing that you can do is just count to 10 in your head. Just that's it. You know, just count to 10. Give yourself something to do besides focus on the fact that there's this potentially awkward silence. And usually most people will fill that in before you get to 10 seconds. So that's one way to sort of deliberately and intentionally just extend that creation of space through silence. I'm curious whether you have any thoughts about the best place to have a conversation. I know parents often will try to have, you know, more serious conversations with their kids when you're maybe driving in a car because you don't have to have that face-to-face, you know, eye contact (laughs) moment and more awkward things can be discussed and they tend to maybe ask more questions. So I'm I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that as to where, you know, if you're going to have a a deeper or a more serious conversation, where's the best place to have it? It's such a good question. Um, And I I have heard the same in terms of cars and and parents or partners. Um, And I think the thing that I'll say before even offering suggestions is just that 
you probably want some variety because you don't want your car to become associated with like <laughs> these intense no, no. conversations. Like, oh man, mom is taking me on a trip now. Like, yeah. want to go I know on errands? No, no. Yeah, exactly. Um, so whatever it is, like, let, let's just aim for some variety. Um, but I would say that there are a couple of elements that become important to think about. And so one of them actually is eye contact and the degree to which you guys are comfortable with eye contact. It can be helpful for some people to not feel like they're staring each other down during a difficult conversation, especially if it's something kind of intense that you want to talk about. So that is probably why driving is helpful because you're not forced to kind of like stare the other person down, but also walking, you know, taking a stroll could serve the same purpose. So think about the degree to which eye contact will be helpful or too intense for the conversation. The other piece of that is movement. So again, being in a car makes sense here because movement tends to free us up a little bit. We feel a little bit free as the scenery is changing. And it, again, gives us something to look at. Um, A walk can still do uh, just fine here. You also want to think, though, about things like the degree to which you need or want privacy. So for some people, you know, You might get movement and looking at something else by walking through a museum. But of course, you're surrounded by other people. That might be great because you have like some good chatter in the background. If you happen to go into a really quiet gallery, that might be terrible because suddenly you are self-conscious and embarrassed about like sharing this deep story in front of the one security guard in the room. Um, So you're sort of you want to think about those elements of what degree of privacy how much chatter in the background is helpful, looking at each other versus not, you know, maybe it's going to a baseball game because you've got people around you and and it's going to fill in any awkward silences and you've got something to talk about, but also you can kind of go into those deep conversations. It's going to look different for everyone. I mean, I think that baseball game example for some people, they're like, no way, like that's, I could never, you know, have a deep conversation in that environment. So it is a little bit of trial and error with a given person and knowing yourself and where you're going to feel comfortable too. As we wrap up here, Amina, I want to ask a question about the role of planning in a conversation. So we've all gotten advice when it comes to uh, planning for an interview, for example, or if you're planning on going on a date and you're thinking about those things that you want to talk about beforehand. Like we've all done that type of thing where we're going to write down some of the things that we're going to ask, or we're doing some planning on like, if they say this, I'm going to respond to this. You sort of like do this dry run of a conversation in your head. And that to me, and tell me if I'm thinking of this wrong, but in some ways that seems to be antithetical to the being present type of advice where you're actually listening and responding and you're being empathetic and you're being responsive to what you're hearing, as opposed to sticking to the playbook that you wrote beforehand. So where do you fall on that? What advice might you have for, should you plan the conversation beforehand? Or when is planning gone too far to the point that you're putting yourself in a box and you're not listening to what the other person says because you're trying to stick to that playbook? Yeah, I think um, it's helpful to have some degree of knowledge around where you want a conversation to go and what you want to get out of it. You know, you wouldn't show up to a meeting with, or maybe you shouldn't show up to a meeting with zero agenda (laughs) um, and just like, hey, let's just like see organically where this goes. That might not be the best use of people's time. So it is helpful to have some sense of direction, but you don't want to over plan it. 
Um, You want to make space for serendipity. And I think the best thing that you can do is to have whatever higher level goal you have in mind for a conversation, but also to be hyper aware of what you're bringing into the conversation. So focusing less on how am I going to respond and more on things like understanding what I call your default listening mode. So how do you tend to hear things in conversation? What is the filter in which you tend to hear things? Are you a problem solver? Are you an identifier, someone who says, oh, me too, or that's like how, when I, X, Y, Z. Are you a mediator who's trying to like make sure all voices are included? Just being aware of what you're bringing into the conversation so that you can adapt it. So it's less about planning out your response and more about knowing, okay, I have a tendency to hear everything as a problem to be solved in this conversation. Is that what's happening (laughs) or is something else needed? So I think being aware of your default mode. And then the other thing I think being aware of ahead of time that can be helpful is what I call hot spots. And so those are particular topics that can be emotionally activating for us. And maybe they're taboo topics that make you uncomfortable to talk about. Maybe they're really personal to you. Like Father's Day is complicated because of a relationship with a parent. You know, they're, they're, they can be very specific, but being aware of what are those topics that In a conversation, if they come up in some way, you might have an emotional reaction and then not be able to hear the other person. So again, it's less, it's less about, you know, coming in with a script and more about generally knowing where you want to go and knowing like, what are some of those personal hurdles for you, be it your default listening mode or these hotspots so that if they arise, you can pretty quickly say, oh, I know what's happening. Like I'm having a reaction to this because of that. Tell our listeners, what's your default listening mode? Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely a problem solver. That is something that I, oh, I um, learned over the years that, especially when I was managing a team, I had to like put that aside and be like, okay, that's that's not a real problem. They're just telling me what they're doing, but they don't need advice. <laughs> yeah. It's painful yeah. though, isn't it? When you when you feel like you have the solution, but you're not supposed to give it. <laughs> yes. I can get in this conversation right now if they just listen. <laughs> And then we can move on. Yeah, I have all the answers. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, Jimena, this is so great and really, really useful. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now it's time for Upgrade of the Week, where we talk about that one thing that's making a big difference in our lives. And I'm starting with you, Jimena. What is your upgrade this week? So my upgrade this week, I recently started going to physical therapy, and I've got these TheraBands, these strengthening bands, which anyone who's gone to physical therapy, if you're like me, it's really hard to do these exercises. They're super boring. Um, It's not super motivating. But my upgrade is I've just started leaving it out, like by my keys, like in the front hallway, 
And now every time I have an instinct to grab my phone and to check my email, just, you know, Mm -hmm. those mindless phone grabs, I just grab the band instead and I just start stretching out my shoulders. So that's that's been visual cue. Yeah. Having the visual cue really, really helps. And it's also sort of shamed me a little bit into realizing (laughs) how often I just mindlessly grab my phone. So it's, it's helping with that habit too. Nice. Nice. That's a good one. I did physical therapy for a very short time for a a finger that I like jammed really bad in basketball and it didn't heal right. And my limited experience with physical therapy is like the type of exercises that they would ask me to do are things that I would have never thought of or done before. And that were really, really hard. Like I had to like take a thing of Play-Doh, I guess it was similar (laughs) to Play-Doh and like stretch it out with my fingers. And I was like, Jesus, my fingers are weak. Like I've never never (laughs) done this before. (laughs) How how do my hands work? It was, it was this weird experience for me. (laughs) (laughs) Megan, what's your upgrade this week? Um, mine is kind of a, a body upgrade as well. Um, Jordan, you and I were talking about this yesterday. You have your nephews who have Mm -hmm. been going to basketball camp. My son has been going to basketball camp and I have busted out the Epsom salts. Um, I actually bought a, a tub expressly for this purpose because when my child runs a lot, my child gets very tired feet and it makes him very miserable. So I got this tub. I got a couple packs of Epsom salts. And as soon as he gets home, we soak his feet and all is right with the world once again. That's one of those things. Have you, have you tried, you've tried it yourself, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It feels nice. (laughs) So it's one of those things that like everyone has heard for years or I've heard for years and I've never tried it before, partially because I don't, we should have our science writer look into this or explain it if she hasn't already. Like I have no idea how it works. Like how does, how does it make you feel better? You got me. I never. (laughs) (laughs) It was recommended from his podiatrist actually. So I figured... She knows I'm what sure she's it, talking I, about. I've, yeah. I've heard it from so many people that like, oh, it's really, really great. You should do an Epsom salt bath. And I just never got around to it. And it's to my own dismay. I should definitely do it. It's time. What about you, Jordan? What's your upgrade? My upgrade this week is one that is... So previously, I did some related to emailing because I am an inbox zero person. And I wanted to get away from the productivity hacks. And instead, this time... Focus on something that I was recently reminded of, which is, I wish I remembered the term for it. You know how your TV has the little like light that'll be on like when it's off? And there are so many different appliances around my apartment that have that type of thing. A light that will run even when you're not using that thing just to indicate that it's alive. Like I, It really serves no useful purpose, uh, especially when the thing is off. And those things just drain electricity all day even when something isn't plugged. Like, well, you have to unplug it to make it stop. So I've gotten in the habit, or at least I'm trying to get into the habit recently of unplugging those things. I think the phrase was like, it was vampire or something. It was like those things that are constantly running, even if you're not using them. That little bit of electricity just accumulates, especially if you have multiple appliances that just have these little lights that run and you're not using them. So I started unplugging my blender and unplugging my ring light when I'm not using it. I don't unplug my TV because that would be too much of a pain in the ass to do repeatedly. But I'm trying to notice those things that are just vampire draining my energy like when I'm not needing them to and unplugging them so they don't do that and then just plugging them back in the rare times that I actually need them. So that's my upgrade of the week is finding those things that are just consistently adding to your energy bill for no good reason and wasting electricity 
when you don't really need them to. That's You're reminding me of my immigrant parents who used to go around <laughs> the house. <laughs> and like, I don't know the technical term for it either, but I'm very familiar with this phenomenon of like looking yeah. for the little red light when it's, you know, the device isn't doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I, I never, you, you don't really realize how many of those little red lights are around until someone points it out to you. And then you're like, oh yeah, there's one there. There's one there. There's one there. There's so many of them. Why do they have them? Now I have to go walking through my house looking for these. Yeah, man. Awareness <laughs> is a curse. Like yeah. last week, Megan had to worry about all the plastic that she uses. Now she has yep. to worry about the lights that are everywhere. Yep. <laughs> so, much, <laughs> one, so much hard work to being a decent, functional adult. It's one thing after another. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, we are definitely, we're definitely better listeners now. Thanks to Humana. So thank nice. you for your time. <laughs> thank you for your advice. Really, really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners have gotten a ton from it. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. And that's our show. The Upgrade is produced by Michaela Heck and mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review so others can find the show. You can also reach us by calling 347-687-8109 and leave us a voicemail or write to us at upgrade at lifehacker.com. You can also find Lifehacker on Twitter at Lifehacker, on Instagram at Lifehacker.com, that's all one word, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Lifehacker. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan M. Calhoun, Megan at Megan Walbert, and you can sign up for Lifehacker's daily newsletter full of tips and tricks and hacks at Lifehacker.com slash newsletter. Of course, you can also find show notes for this and every episode of The Upgrade by going to Lifehacker.com and searching for podcasts.